reading from Mark chapter 10, they came to Jericho, and he, as he as his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Meany sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. So sort of in continuation of last week's sermon, Michelle was in the book of Job. And after all these laments of Job, God finally speaks. Sort of a humbling word. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And it goes on for some chapters. And then we have this beautiful piece from Job 42.5, which Glenda read, where Job has this moment of epiphany. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There was something different about just hearing and actually perceiving. We've all heard about God. We have our stories to tell. We share our stories We say we know something about God, but it's a whole other thing to see God. And this is exactly where we land in Mark's gospel, learning to see. And I have to say from the outset, this is not just another healing story. If we just see this as a miracle story of Jesus, which, by the way, is the last of the miracle stories in Mark's gospel, if we just see it as, oh, isn't Jesus powerful and miraculous? We will miss the point that the writer's trying to get us to see. So it helps to show show that this is what we call one of the Markin sandwiches. Mark's gospel is loaded with intentionality, which is why we've kind of done the, what I call the Markin arc, or the arc of Mark. Here, from chapter 8 now to chapter 10, the end. So we've been in this about six weeks. And one of the things that we notice is when Mark starts in chapter 8, verses 22, there's a healing of a blind man story. And this healing of the blind man story frames it at the beginning. And then by the end of chapter 10, the sandwich, you have another healing of a blind man. So that's why we call it a Markin sandwich. And so one of the things the sandwich does is say, well, what is in the middle? That's sort of what we're going to look at um, as the focal, sort of the thrust. And it's really interesting because in the first healing of the blind man story, notice that it, it doesn't happen at once. 
in chapter 8. It's like Jesus puts the saliva on his eyes and touches him. But then, remember, he sees people like trees walking. So there's this progression of restoring sight. Interestingly, today's story of Bartimaeus, he is healed instantaneously. So hold that. Then inside of the sandwich, oh my goodness, we have the disciples looking really smart. Not. No. Okay, so the disciples don't get it. It's sort of the, you know, case in missing the point over and over again. And it's, I mean, it is laughable from our seat, which, of course, we try not to pass judgment, but because we're the same way. But you notice Peter claims to have spiritual insight. This is following that first blind story. He says, I know you are the Messiah. He gets it, right? There seems to be spiritual insight. But then what happens right after he declares that Jesus is the Messiah? He rebukes them. Never a good thing to do to Jesus. And he says, you're not going to suffer and die. That's not the way a Messiah conducts business. And so you notice that this disciple has some progression to make in his own spiritual insight. So Mark is doing something very important literarily here to show us that spiritual insight also takes a progressive form. The disciples keep not getting it. In fact, Jesus tells them three times he will have to suffer and die, and they still don't get it. In fact, they're so um, betwixt and between, they just start arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And they do this multiple times in just this one little sandwich from eight, chapter 8 to 10 until last week's piece where James and John are literally jockeying for position. Who's going to sit on the left? Who's going to sit on the right? So it's this fascinating insight to show us contextually that the ones who get it, Are the blind. And we'll, we'll see that with Bartimaeus. The outsider. And ironically, it is the insider. The one that's been with Jesus, the disciples. Who don't get it. Ouch. <laughs> and it's, it, will be, it will become quite, it will heat up for us. And then we see the beauty of the story of Bartimaeus. I want to invite you, though, really, before we... I have a question. This is a conversational sermon, so I hope you're, you're ready. Um, the, the ultimate point of Mark's gospel, though, because we have to not just set it in, inside the sandwich, but see it as a whole, is Jesus' greater point... <laughs> Is his mission and identity that's set here with Bartimaeus is to say, I have come to give insight, sight to all the blind. But what's going to happen? Jesus is going to die, and in his death, even the disciples who thought they could see 
go away from the event not seeing at all. So even to the end of the gospel, you have them at Jesus' final moments. And the spotlight comes on and they just run like cockroaches. But I love Mark's gospel ending. There's a man dressed in white telling the women that Jesus has risen. And he says, but go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. You're finally going to see, just as he told you. And one commentator says it better than I, Victor McCracken. In his death, Christ reveals the blindness of his followers. In his resurrection... Jesus gives his followers eyes to see the good news of God's ongoing reign. So this is sort of the Mark and Ark, the Ark of Mark that we land in today. And I have a question to get it sort of get priming the pomp here as I get into the story of Bartimaeus. And my question is, and it came sort of from our free-for-all conversation, is... What does it mean to see God? What does it mean to see? Now, I I will say, too, that just kind of to juxtapose that question, in John's gospel, you'll hear Jesus say, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. So there's this fascinating wordplay on sight and blindness. So how do so the question is what does it mean to see God? And maybe even how do we know if we see? How do we even know? What's the litmus test to know if we do see? Okay? So I'm going to throw that open. Deep thoughts. Okay. <laughs> I just <stay> quiet. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, uh, one of the things my my I don't know if it's my professor in seminary who said this or another pastor the the two the two words of s- says who you know because say next year a political presidential year and some people say oh I've seen God because this Democrat is now president or oh I've seen God because this Republican <clears throat> is now president. So it's like, well, okay, that's what you say seeing God is. And so, you know, how do we know in, in the mosaic of, um, of opinions? Um, and for me, where do you see God? It's in the words of what Jesus says. When you see, the, when you see me, you see the Father. And so, therefore, that, that becomes the lens in which I look. So if I see at the, life, at the Joseph Center, when we're feeding people in need, when we are having conversation with them, when I see... Uh, marriage is restored, when I see parents present with their children, when I see um, people power washing the front of the church, um, when I pe- see people taking care of um, homeless youth uh, kicked out because of their um, orientation, sexual orientation, um, I see Jesus, I see God. So how do I know I see God? It's what Jesus says, when you see the Father, you see me. And when I 
see actions, behaviors, worship, praise, um, that's how I know I see God. Okay. At the same time, I wonder. Oh, hold on. I gotta hear. I gotta hear these. At the same time, I wonder if it's not true. A little bit of what C.S. Lewis, I think, said that it's not so much that we see light, but it's by the light that we see everything else. It's not so much that we see Christ, but it's by him, by his love, by what he has taught us, that we were able to see everything else around us, like those lenses you were talking about. Thank you. Heather? Lisa? No? No. Okay, Glenda. I didn't really steal this from Wayne. Um, for, for me, it's more about the mysterious. When I recognize it's um, something very much other than myself. Uh, and it does involve the senses. But I, I'm very willing to work on a level where my senses aren't, aren't present. And uh, I'm not seeing. So it, it takes the willingness for the mystery. Um, and when that happens in me, I feel overcome. And it happens all the time with others around me if I'm willing hmm. to observe it, hear it. You know, it's always bothered me that the only disciple that was at the crucifixion was John. And, it's, and it reminds me that I believe that when you see Christ, your belief is not in your mind, but in your heart. Mm. Okay, so that's a good segue. Yeah, the way, so seeing and used in biblical literature is a metaphor for believing. So when they talk about seeing, typically they're meaning belief or faith, which is going to take part in this story. So hold that present as we get into this story. So the disciples are leaving Jericho, and there's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. As Lisa said, he's sitting by the roadside, an outsider. And he hears that Jesus is coming. And we don't know how he knew of Jesus, but we just know that he does. In fact... He knows so much, his sight, though physically disabled, he has spiritual insight because he calls out Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this title, the son of David, is a messianic claim, a title that says, Jesus, son of David, you are the one that is to come. It's a royal title, the one who will be the king of kings. And it's interesting, I don't know about you, but how many of you have noticed that people who have sort of one sense taken away or maybe a health limitation, another sense is enhanced? Have you experienced that? And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, too, It's as if, as we look out and we notice the leaves are falling, and we have a certain vista point at our house, 
It's as if so much has fallen away and been emptied, and yet it's only because these have fallen away that you have a new line of vision. Sometimes it's when something is taken away, as we see in Job's story, that new vision is given. And so here's Bartimaeus waiting, now all the more speaking loudly for Jesus to come. And all the disciples, notice not one uh, deviant voice here says, be quiet, and they rebuke him for calling Jesus. And again, what Mark is doing is showing their spiritual blindness. I mean, Jesus literally, verses before this, says, if you want to be first you got to be last. And here's one of these outsiders calling, clamoring for Jesus' attention. And they tell him, ultimately, we don't have time for you. So we step into the story. Notice, of course, Jesus' compassion. And I love what, if you notice the nuance and just the detail of this scripture, it says Jesus stood still. What does it take for Jesus to stand still? The call of the desperate one. The call of the one who knows he or she needs Jesus. In fact, there's another detail that we really got into at Free For All, that not only does he come, but he throws off his cloak. He throws off this cloak. And ultimately, as Kathleen said, there's a sense that he doesn't need this anymore, which is very, very telling because this was probably his most prized possession. He used it to keep warm. He maybe used it to hold the money as a beggar. We don't know, but, of course, he didn't have many possessions. So the fact that he, he literally leaves it, and then there's this great verb. He springs up, and he goes to Jesus. It's sort of this imagery of a true disciple that leaves everything behind and goes toward the one who is the source of healing and life. And then there's this amazing twist. And, and again, it's such a neat, when we compare it to this, in this sandwich. Jesus says, <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? Hello! It's just this sort of hilarious moment. I can't, it's probably like the comic relief. What do you want me to do for you? Well, if we hadn't read this in conjunction with what we looked at last week, we would probably forget that Jesus poses the exact same question, word for word, to James and John. Just verses before this in 36. Because, again, they were talking on the road, James and John, and Jesus says to them the very same thing, what do you want me to do for you? I sort of see it as a, a play. And on the stage, if I was going to stage this, you would have James and John and the disciples on one side and Bartimaeus over here and Jesus on the middle, in the middle. And the light comes up on this side... And Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, I want to be on the right. No, I want to be on the left. 
We want honor and glory. And the light goes down. And then the light comes up over here, over Bartimaeus, and Jesus pivots, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And almost with a confessional tone, he says, Lord, I want to see again. And there's such a contrast. Same question, polar opposite responses. And it's a little bit... (laughs) You know, i got to think Jesus has got to be tired of being a little party favor. What do you want me to do for you? Or a little, or a little Santa Claus. What do you want me to do for you? And it just highlights the difference between spiritual blindness and spiritual insight. They're still obsessed with honor and glory and title and status. And here's one humble that just wants to receive sight. I love, I love what Cynthia Jarvis, some of you know her, a uh, great uh, thinker, and, and this comes from one commentary, and talking about how those answers are so different. Listen to what she says. The one answer rests on well-established religious laurels. The other petition issues from darkness and doubt. The one request would sidestep suffering. The other is forged out of loss, exclusion, and helplessness. The one is bent on an exclusive claim to righteousness. The other is bowed down and kneed before the Son who alone is righteous. What a different way of posturing ourselves before God. And I think it's interesting to note that it is the outsider, the one who has nothing to lose but everything to gain that stands in a place of submission and surrender. Now, before we get too much further, I want to say I don't think Bartimaeus was super spiritual. (laughs) I think he wanted to see, right? (laughs) I think he sort of was, you know, he'd heard of Jesus, and he said, I want to see. He knew what he wanted. In fact, Lisa had a great conversation around this question. If Jesus came to us saying, what do you want me to do for you? What would we say? Would we have clarity about that? What do you want me to do for you? But here's the difference between Bartimaeus, the spiritually insightful one, and these disciples. He knew the source of healing. He knew that the prayer, help me, help me, help me, is one of the best prayers that any of us can utter. This comes from an Anne Lamott book that some of you have read. That the three prayers are thank you, help me, and wow. If you summarize all of the prayers that we pray. And this beautiful prayer of help me puts you in a posture of recognizing you're not the center of the universe. And that's where Bartimaeus is very sightful. How many times do we depend on our own religious laurels, or as I've said before, our blessed assurance? 
Neediness is not becoming, is it? We have our things to protect, our money, our pride, our status, and it keeps us insulated. And we don't want to admit it, but it keeps us blind. In fact, Herb had a great question to the group Tuesday that said, what if we don't realize that we are the ones They don't recognize that we need to be healed. Here's the difference. And I want to engage you in this question. For someone like Bartimaeus, an outsider, he recognizes, as I said, he has nothing to lose. But for us, We are still clinging to our attachments, and as Herb said, we don't recognize that we even need healing. And again, as Cynthia Jarvis said, I love this, she says, for someone like Bartimaeus, faith is a matter of life and death rather than social convention. So I want to speak, I want to, invite you into the conversation because what Jesus says next is very curious to me. He says, your faith has made you well. You know, he didn't say, I made you well. I'm the source. He said, your faith has made you well. So let's have a conversation a little bit about this piece about faith, in essence, is saying faith is a matter of life and death to some, and for others, it's social convention. And yet, Jesus said the only way that you'll be healed is by your faith. Your faith has made you well. So, jump in there. What does faith mean here? Can we back up just a little bit? Yeah. The thing I think means so much to me in this whole encounter is when Jesus speaks to the man to Bartimaeus, to dare to ask him, yeah. what do you want? Yeah. Most people who would even notice him wouldn't speak to him. Mm-hmm. They might throw a coin in his, in yeah. his pouch. Yeah. But Jesus recognized his humanity and said to him, what is it that you want for me to do for you? Mm-hmm. And so many times, people that we try to help, we think, oh, we know what they need. We know what they want, but we don't dare to ask them, what is it that you want to do? Uh, This is where I think the work that Kathleen and her group with uh, teen homelessness are doing so much good because they're not just trying to go in and say, here's a solution. It's here are people. Let's get to know the people and get to know what they say their needs are so that we can work together on maybe making the beloved community come a little bit more to life. Thanks. Uh, Deborah, right behind you. When I read the scripture and everything, I think Bartimaeus had no doubt. And a lot of times we go into prayer, and sometimes that self-doubt or whatever it is, is can God really fix this? I mean, these are circumstances of the world. What, what are we looking at this for? Bartimaeus' cloak was a beggar's cloak. When he got up, he threw that label off. 
Mm. He had so much faith that he said, I'm taking this off. Here's this label. It's, mm. I'm no longer this. I'm going to this man who I know no doubt will heal me. Mm. And I think a lot of that is that sometimes we get trapped in the labels we put on ourselves. Somebody may have sickness. Somebody may be an alcoholic. Somebody may be this. But they're trapped in that label. And instead of throwing that off and believing Christ can heal them, that traps us. Bartimaeus didn't have that. Okay, um, Michael in the back. Um, a lot of times when I do funerals and memorials, and I've done a lot of them at this point, um, I'll say that death was never God's plan. Death was never God's plan in the creation story. And then when you go back to the creation story, whatever you believe, in the beginning in the garden, before sin entered the space, God and Adam, and thus Adam and Eve, um, tended the garden together. They walked one another. They were a team. It wasn't they just showed up and ordered fries and a burger. <laughs> they had to till the land. They had to name the animals. And so as, as, as God, is, uh, as Jesus Christ is bringing the kingdom here on earth, restoring things to the way they used to be, restoring it to wholeness, but also part of that restoration was the way it was before sin was the way it was when they were together in the garden, was they were a team. You know, as they, <laughs> as they co-created the care experience, um, as God has it, he's not a magician, and the goal is God. The goal is not just him being healed, but also it's relationship. A part of what do you want means you're part of this. Hmm. There's a work. There's a connection. It's always teamwork. Once in a while... God will do something supernaturally and just, boom, put something there. But many other times, there's a work and engagement together with God, whether it is someone doing it for someone else, like the four friends putting their friend through the roof, or like blind Bartimaeus, it is, listen, I'm not a magician. Hmm. My goal is for you to have a relationship with me, and you are part of this. Hmm. And th so that's, I believe it is, the way it was always intended to be, and we see that in the Garden of Eden story. Hmm. That's, the, that's, the rest, that's the true restoration of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's interesting, as we discussed this at Free For All, some of your voices were very um, present as I was putting this together. I, Artie had said um, something very interesting about our eye, we really have two choices. Our eyes are either on us or on God. Because you were talking about lenses in which we look at things. We're, we're either, or you said this in your sermon last week, Michelle, it's either the God-centered way of seeing or the, the me-centered way of seeing. And the ultimate point of this Bartimaeus story is to show this last piece, which says... Immediately, verse 52 says, he regained sight. And notice what happens. It says, it, he followed him, Jesus, on the way. In every other healing story, Jesus will heal, and he says, go or be silent, and they go back. But in this story, after Bartimaeus sees it says he follows. 
him on the way. Well, guess where the way was leading? Next chapter. To Jerusalem, to the cross. Very next chapter, you have the Palm Sunday story. And here is one, the outsider, that will actually follow all the way. It's a fascinating contrast. You know, we were joking, Glenda had mentioned, you know, he may have had this whole list of what he wanted to see. Like, when I get my sight, I know what I want to see. You know, Taj Mahal? No, I don't know. (laughs) That was kind of far. But you can imagine he had a list, right, of things he wanted to see. And yet there's this moment of transformation that shows God's mercy that not only does he give him physical sight, but he deepens his spiritual insight that he leaves everything to follow him on the way. Forget all his, his list of things that maybe he wanted to see once he gained his sight. He follows. So today, as we wrap up, I want to just give voice to these last words and questions that were around the table on Tuesday. Artie asked, do we see Jesus enough to follow him? Do we see Jesus enough to follow him? We see what we want to see, someone said. Ellie said, do we want to see? And Philip responded, if we saw, we would follow. I can't help but close this with, as we think, I'm I'm leaving this open-ended, clearly, (laughs) rhetorically. But I want to leave you with this incredible poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth is crammed with heaven. Earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush aflame with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Amen.